Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Yeah, I'm just looking at a one-year chart for the S&P 500, and obviously, you know, back in March, we saw that, you know, 34%, 35% decline in the S&P as a pandemic, and the economic impacts of the pandemic really became apparent to investors. But, you know, we've retraced much of that decline here, and we have the S&P at 3170 here off a little bit today get a sense of kind of where we go from here. Chris Ailman, he's a chief investment officer for the California, California State Teachers uh, Retirement System. Um, Chris, what are you telling your participants in your plan about the market here, uh, given the tremendous volatility we've seen just over the past, you know, three to four months? Hey, good to talk to you, Paul. You know, and that's it. You back up and take the long-term view. Look at the market over the last year. What surprises most people is we're actually positive. You know, if we had thought last July that we'd have a global pandemic and that the economy would come to a complete stop, you wouldn't expect the market to be up, uh, you know, 8% from where we were roughly. So, uh, this is a time to really back away from the daily news. I know, you know, the PPP, uh, Paytech Protection uh, loans will dominate the headlines, but in a couple of weeks, we're going to have April 15th again, all of a sudden in July. And it's a good time to back up and look at your investments, rebalance your asset allocation, and not get carried away with the volatility of this market. It has been crazy in the first six months. That said, Chris, all it's really done is gone up. I mean, after that massive plunge in March. So what, what, what's to say that that's going to keep going? I mean, really, we're very dependent on those five companies that make up more than a fifth of the market, aren't we? Oh, Bonnie, you hit it on the head. Um, as everybody's been saying, this is a market of stocks. And when you look at the S&P 500, those five, six stocks are dominating 
the vast majority of the other 495 stocks are still below where they started the year uh, or just barely trending above. Um, so uh, it's a tough year. You, you know that I'm a big fan of index funds. I mm-hmm. say own the market. Um, this is a time where normally when you have this kind of volatility, a, a drop and a, a rally where the active manager should make money. Uh, but the real economy bears no resemblance uh, to the stock market. It is off in its own world. So I have found the active managers are really getting hurt. You know, growth stocks, principally the large growth stocks, have been all the return. And value stocks are actually negative on the year. So fundamentals don't make any sense. I mean, just like Warren Buffett has said, uh, this market is, is baffling in here. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense. That said, I think investors are better off owning the entire market as a whole, so they get those growth stocks, but they also get some of those value stocks that are trying to tread water through the, the virus. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, you, know, you, you hit on a common theme that we've heard from many, that the market is not really reflective of the economy. What is your call here as we as it relates to the economy here, you know, we've thrown V's, W's, L's, U's. Um, as it relates to the economy, we're seeing, you know, a lot of states seeing becoming hotspots that were in terms of the virus. How are you thinking about the econo- economy over the next several quarters? You know, you don't fight the Fed. So with that in mind and that they're trying to stimulate the economy, the the federal government on the fiscal side is is running such a big deficit, I just don't think they can keep trying to stimulate. So I would say a sloppy W. Picture the way a doctor typically signs a prescription note and uh, (laughs) picture that W. It's going to be sloppy. I don't think it's going to go well in the economy. Now, how does the stock market react? That's a completely different question and tough to figure out. Uh, It should start to bear some resemblance to reality. But uh, this is not your normal market. You've got millions and millions of day traders sitting around watching Bloomberg, looking at their screens, uh, no sports to bet on, uh, very few uh, casinos to go to. So it's suddenly become a speculative market around the world. Um, I think it's really a time for an investor to, to be weary, not try to be a day trader. And I think that we're going to have a, a tough go. I mean, there's just a huge percentage of the economy that is still shut down. Think of the airlines, the cruise ships, not just the restaurants, but all those people you were talking about, the zoos um, that got uh, the PPP loans. We still have huge unemployment, even though the uh, statistics don't show giant numbers. Uh, people are surviving on that $600 a week uh, federal stimulus, and that just can't go on forever. Chris, you're you know a big proponent of, of explaining that Calsters is like a tanker. When you try to, to move it, it takes some time. Are you already looking at the possibility that the president will not be the president post this election and that maybe it will be a Joe Biden presidency? And what would you do with portfolios in that instance? Well, Vani, I've learned not to try to predict politics. It's crazy. That's a whole other game. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, it's too early. I think, in my view, to try and position your portfolio in anticipation of that. What I am concerned about is a very sloppy election, a contested election, where we'll see uh, it drawn out in court. A lot of us forget the the Gore-Bush election many, many years ago. And while the market managed that through that crisis because it was only the state of Florida, I'm worried that all the key states could end up in lawsuits and that this could be a really contested election which should be bad for the market, that level of uncertainty. 
whether one party or the other wins and takes control, the market will vet that out in, in January and in February. Um, I think it's still going to be a, it's going to be a problem for the market once we start hitting August and September. Then, then the election becomes very clear right in their face, and that uncertainty about who's in control will cause uh, volatility in the markets as they gyrate back and forth, particularly in industries like the drug makers, um, uh, what happens in terms of the federal bailouts. Uh, it does risk tax law and so many issues when we have an election. Chris, uh, real quick, maybe 30 seconds. Uh, how concerned are you about the deteriorating uh, relationship between the U.S. and China? Uh, Paul, that is absolutely something to watch. Our board in 2021 is going to do a deep dive into China and really understand it. It is one of the few economies growing at you know close to 8% on the, when it rebounds, but the ESG issues are enormous. And, and just the fact that it's a communist system, are we comfortable investing in that kind of a market? So that's our number one trading partner, uh, not number one in terms of size, but I mean, it's the number two economy in the world. That relationship matters a ton. Chris, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. Chris Ilman is CIO of Calsters, more than $235 billion in assets under management. And he's talking about a sloppy W-type recovery, which doesn't sound all that appetizing. <laughs> it doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? No, it doesn't. Rough seas ahead, according to Chris. The U.S. housing market has been surprising economists. It rallied in the middle of the pandemic, but it's not the end of the story. Coronavirus may drag down home values after all this, according to CoreLogic. Let's bring in now our reporter who worked on the story with Prashant Gopal. John Gittleson, welcome to the program. John, in your story, you have looked at the CoreLogic data and you say that through May 2021, prices will fall about 6.6%. It doesn't sound like a massive drop, given that people are out of work and haven't even been able to, to look at houses. Why 6.6%? Well, it's a combination of factors. I mean, there's still a lot of demand out there. There's a lot of millennials who are moving into the housing market. Interest rates are low, so affordability is still there. Um, <clears throat> even though unemployment is high, uh, the majority of people are still employed, and there's a lot of people who uh, you know, want bigger space, too. So many factors that uh, may have been brought into play by the coronavirus are supporting housing prices, uh, despite the huge impact on the economy. John, are there, you know, what we've seen in housing in the past, including the financial crisis uh, 2008, 2009, was a, a, you know, a big difference regionally in the strength of the housing market. Are we seeing that today as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, this report broke out some major metro areas, and they said, for example, Las Vegas losing 20% in value. Um, and Las Vegas is it's a big tourism mecca, obviously, and tourism is one of the areas that's being hit hardest. Um, and Las Vegas was also, according to CoreLogic, overvalued even before the crisis. Um, there's other areas like San Diego, they say, is only falling 1.3%. Um, <clears throat> New York area, and this is the metro area, not specifically, you know, Manhattan, but they're forecasting over the next 12 months or uh, about a 5.9% price decline. So 
I guess this is the best case scenario. Um, as you say, some areas are going to experience huge declines, like Las Vegas, for example. Does it depend on where the jobs are or where the jobs end up not being if there is some structural unemployment after all this? That's definitely a big part of the problem. Uh, and there's also going to be sort of unforeseen impact that's <clears throat> playing itself out every day. Do people want to live in suburbs? Can they work from home? Can they, uh, you know, do they want to have a bigger house? And so all of those types of things are, are going to affect where people move, where they buy, and where they sell. There's also the big demographic issue that even a, a pandemic can't stop, which is you've got aging baby boomers and you've got millennials moving into houses. So those big shifts in population are going to be a bigger factor even than the pandemic as people, you know, they're not stopping having babies. They're not stopping getting old and retiring. So, John, one of the themes that uh, I've heard about a lot over the last several years in, as it relates to housing is there's just not enough housing, entry-level housing. The housing that's being built today is perhaps, you know, more on the higher end of the market, and there's just not enough uh, entry-level housing being built and boomers maybe aren't moving out as quickly as they used to, thereby creating a uh, you know supply-demand imbalance on the lower end. Is that still the case? Yeah, that's definitely the case. Affordability is a huge issue. I mean, that's why we have a lot of homeless people to begin with. That's why a lot of people are living in apartments. People are renting single-family homes. Um, but a big contrast with now and the you know 2008 financial crisis, there was a housing bubble going on. There was overproduction of housing then. And uh, there was a huge surplus that when people stopped paying their mortgages, people were underwater. They walked away from their homes. You don't have people walking away from their homes now because people have equity in their homes. And because home prices have gone up, but production has not kept pace with demand. Does this all depend on a stock market that keeps going higher, John? If we saw, a, you know, a big correction, would we, you know, would that necessarily entail a very different housing market? Well, I think there's, you know, correlation, but not necessarily cause. Um, the wealth effect definitely makes people feel like, oh, I can afford to buy a home. I, you know, I, I feel like risking more. Uh, home sales did not stop, you know, in April and May when the stock market was tanking. Mm. So, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who said, I can afford to do this now. I, I got my job and um, mortgage rates are so low because of the Fed intervention that actually something that, you know, uh, cost more than I would have been able to afford a couple of years ago is now actually affordable because I can get such a low interest rate on it. A 3% mortgage is a lot cheaper than a 4% mortgage. John, just real quickly, how, how, are the mor how is the mortgage market? Are people, are we seeing a lot of delinquencies? Um, they are definitely going up. Uh, there were like 9% of single-family home loans were in forbearance. Um, not all of those are officially delinquent, so okay. they are rolling into delinquencies. Um, they're so much below the level that they were at the peak of the post-financial crisis, yep. but they're heading in that direction. Interesting. John uh, Gittosan, thank you so much for that. Just getting a, a real 
solid across-the-board update on the housing market uh, in the United States. Uh, John Gittoson, a real estate and investing reporter for uh, Bloomberg News. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, yesterday marked a little bit of a return to what we used to refer to as Merger Monday when you get a lot of deals announced, typically on a Monday after a weekend's worth of deal talks. We had... Uh, Warren Buffett uh, making a $10 billion bet on some energy assets. Uber uh, increasing its, uh, I guess, its footprint in the food delivery business. A couple of those deals yesterday. To get a sense of kind of what the pandemic is doing to the M&A environment, we turn to Rob Brown. He's a managing director and CEO of North America for Lincoln International based in Chicago. So, Rob, give us a sense, if you will, kind of, what the M&A environment has been over the last several months as corporate CEOs and investment bankers try to gauge kind of what the pandemic means for the business climate? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks, Paul. Um, so if, if you dial back to the beginning of this year, uh, we entered this year really in one of the best M&A markets um, of the last probably 50 years, maybe ever. And so it was expected that the M&A activity would uh, continue at that pace through this year. Uh, and then the government reactions to COVID and really the stopping of the global economy, as you can appreciate, um, had a material effect on that. In fact, from March through May uh, in 2020 versus 2019, global M&A volume was down over 30 percent. Um, and so I think there was uh, just a pause. Let's take a wait and see. There were some deals that went forward, um, for sure. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now are buyers and sellers lifting their heads up and saying, okay, there are going to be deals that get done. And, and the two you mentioned that were announced yesterday were obviously very large deals. But really across the spectrum, what we're starting to see in the you know, 300 plus deals we have in backlog is that that the M&A market is returning. And I think the expectation is the back half of this year is going to be materially more active than the last three or four months. How have those deals in the works got repriced in the previous weeks, Bob? You know, many of them haven't. They, they've taken, if, if any, reduction in price. I think they've been small reductions because I think what's happened is uh, if you can show, hey, my business performed well during the downturn, my sector is a sector that may be more attractive or at least equally attractive as it was pre-COVID, uh, there's not a lot of value deterioration there because what you what you still have and what's really driving this, there's there's... Uh, some estimates are close to a billion five of private equity capital available, what they call dry powder, and you layer on top of that the cash sitting on corporate balance sheets and a stock market that is still expecting these companies to grow when you look at the way the stock market and multiples are holding up. So I think the deals that are getting done right now, for the most part, are high-quality companies 
that are saying, listen, I performed well, I've shown I truly am essential, I've got a good business model that can withstand something like COVID. So we haven't seen a lot of uh, a value deterioration on those businesses. There are some deals we're starting to see come to market, Bonnie, that are uh, lender-driven deals, maybe a company that wasn't performing well uh, pre-COVID and then COVID hit, and now they're really not performing well, and, and they're over-levered, and the lenders are starting to say, hey, we, we got to get paid, let's sell these. So we're starting to see a little bit of what we call distressed M&A, although interestingly, less of that than we may have thought, you know, given the real shock to the economy. So Rob, when I think about uh, trends in M&A, it, to me, it's oftentimes a reflection of confidence, confidence from a CEO and a board about their business, maybe their sector, the overall economy. I can't imagine CEOs are that confident right now. So how are they thinking about M&A? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think what you're seeing the strategic acquires, the large corporate acquires, I think the way they're thinking about M&A is, you know, over the last four, five, six, seven years, they were under pressure to grow. They'd have organic growth. They'd supplement that with M&A. Their confidence in their business and their outlook was putting them in a position to maybe do acquisitions that are outside of their core businesses, adding another leg to the stool, expanding things. What we're seeing is, is that CEOs still feel that they need to grow. There's pressure to grow, and, and they can't hit their growth targets solely through organic. So they still want M&A to be part of that strategy. But what we're seeing is that lens shrinking, where the strategics and the CEOs are saying, I'm going to buy businesses that are in businesses I'm already in, where I know them, where there's really, really identifiable synergies that I can price. Uh, and I'm confident enough to do that. I think your point is, the, the lack of visibility and maybe a lack of confidence in where this economy is going, I think that's going to limit some of those, let's get into new businesses, let's get into complementary areas for uh, strategic acquirers and CEOs. Briefly, Rob, any vertical or horizontal concerns regula- regulation-wise? Are, will there be deals done before November just because we may see a j- different administration? Uh, maybe. I think the bigger driver for deals is we're in a relatively low tax environment. Mm. And, you know, if, 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 if the Democrats win, there may be a view that taxes are going to go up and capital gains taxes. Uh, that may not take effect until 2021. So I think a little less about the regulatory environment. We are hearing some people say, listen, I'd rather take the gain in a period of time where I know uh, capital gains rates are relatively low. So I, I think that could affect it. You know, you talk about regulatory, um, you know, what we're really seeing now in this administration, you know, the, the, the regulatory hurdle is really foreign investment, um, and, and particularly from Asia, where this administration doesn't like that. So, yeah. um but, but I think from a regulatory standpoint, uh, you know, it's not clear um, how things would change if the administration changes. All right, Rob, we have plenty of time to talk about that. That's for sure. Rob Brown is MD and CEO of North America at Lincoln International, a middle market PE firm. Thanks for joining. So we got the PPP data yesterday and loan recipients included a law firm run by one of President Trump's key defenders in the Russia probe, that's Mark Kasowitz. We also had a Kushner family real estate project in there, the publisher of the National Enquirer, American Media, of course. And uh, lots, lots more interesting data to mine. 88,000 loans went to religious organizations. Let's bring in two people who've mined the database now and know a lot about what they're talking about. Tim O'Brien is Bloomberg Opinion columnist and Mark Niquette joins us as well. 
Tim, let's begin with you because there are a lot of headlines about how Trump uh, affiliated companies or those affiliated with at least, you know, Trump's trademarks got loans. Was there anything necessarily shady or uh, unusual about this? Well, I think the, the broader thing to think about to begin with is, is was this program properly conceived from the beginning? <clears throat> and, and has there been enough oversight to make sure that the most needy businesses got the money they needed to stay afloat? And we don't have enough evidence yet to know whether that broader goal has been reached. And the problem with all of these stories about insiders getting first in line to get the loans raises you know one facet of uh, one set of problems around this which is um there weren't clear guidelines about who was the most deserving and whether those are businesses affiliated um with democrats or republicans i think there's a real problem with anybody from any party getting getting to the front of the line first because they have connections in Washington or connections to the SBA or connections to the White House. And certainly um, there was concerns about this with Trump from the very beginning. Uh, Chuck Schumer, early on when the, peop- when, when the CARES Act was being drafted, said there would be language in there to make sure that uh, Trump-related entities didn't get any funding. And and then it ended up being that the PPP funding, which is one of the biggest arms of the bailout, was exempt from some of that. And you have to wonder why that occurred. Mm. So, Mark, you wrote uh, just a fantastic article kind of detailing what happened here, what's going on, where the money's going. What are some of the key takeaways you had? Like, who were some of the, the big recipients that maybe surprised you that uh, received uh, money? Well, it was, it was quite a range of, of companies that did access the funding, um, including, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a, a lot of nonprofits and religious organizations. Um, you know, we saw, as you said, about 88,000 loans for religious organizations, including the uh, Archdiocese of New York um, and nonprofits ranging from universities to museums to zoos that tapped this funding. And what was striking about it is just, you know, the, the breadth of these companies um, both nonprofit and, and and corporations that tapped this loan, it sort of gave you a sense of just how you know deep the impact was, or uh, how uh, frantic these companies were to apply for this aid, uh, particularly when this project launched. Yeah, I mean, Tim, there was money left over, and there was a lot of problems in actually trying to apply for money. And you know, the idea that money being left over, uh, you know, is is just wasteful, right? And there's another problem here as well. We don't know who accessed the largest loans. Now, we don't know who accessed the smallest ones either, but there was certainly a sort of an effort to have small businesses only apply for what they needed. So it does seem like there may have been, you know, different levels of invitation to this particular program. Well, you know, there were two tranches. Remember, the first tranche, there were, there were a lot of problems with the SBA's computer systems, banks being gatekeepers to small businesses to get the money, uh, you know, the, the, the first huge tranche of this over $300 billion uh, went out the door in two weeks. Um, I think there was a strong effort made when the second round of funding came along to make sure <clears throat> that most, most authentically small businesses that didn't have resources, meaning uh, you know companies that weren't publicly traded, for example, um, uh, had, had better channels in to get the money, and it appears that they did. And I think that the fact that there was some money left over um, I think suggests that at least some of the initial bleeding was staunched. But um, 
we're still in early days in this. And, and I think the government's going to have to kind of wrestle with the reality that this may have just been a stopgap measure. Um, and also with the reality that there just simply hasn't been enough oversight and data collection put in place for the public to really know whether or not these programs have met their goals. Mark, what's the sense of the oversight here? Is there a belief here? I know we're kind of early days, but is there a consensus or a belief that the oversight was adequate or not so much? No, I think there's, there's, there's growing pushback that not enough disclosure happened here. I mean, one of the things that, that occurred was the Trump administration initially said it wasn't going to disclose any data about the mm-hmm. uh, PPP loans, arguing that this was proprietary or confidential information um, because, you know, payroll information was used to calculate the amount of the loans. And the idea was, you know, particularly smaller firms, you know, releasing that payroll data would be, you know, proprietary or confidential. And after pushback from uh, the public and lawmakers, uh, SBA and Treasury agreed to release sort of some of the data. We got the names of companies and uh, other details uh, for all loans of more than 150000 But for loans under 150000 all you got was a loan amount and the um, um, some demographic information. Um, and as it turns out, that's, that accounts for about 86-87% of all of the loans fall into that category of less than one hundred. Fifty thousand. So we don't we don't have you know details of who got these loans uh, for the majority of the borrowers, and you're you're seeing push by uh, Democrats in particular to say, well, you know, the disclosure is fine. Uh, we see you know the names of companies for the larger loans, but we need yep. to really see who took these lower loans, just because that's the only way we're going to be avail- be able to evaluate right. whether this program actually reached the borrowers it needed to. Mark Niket, thanks so much for joining us. Mark is a corporate influence reporter for uh, Bloomberg News and, of course, Tim O'Brien, senior opinion columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.